The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Father, you have placed us in your world to be light, to be tangible love, display you. Thank you for the song that we just heard that reminds us of that. And Lord, I pray that you would be at work in us to make us better lights, more tender touches, more constant love. Lord, use us, shape us as, a, as individuals and as a church to be people who reflect you to the world around us. We read your scriptures, Father, and we know that you are after the world that is around us. You're pursuing it in grace through us. We thank you for that because it caught up to us and now uses us in something grand that is larger than us, but a delight to us. We thank you for doing that. Thank you for using us. And Father, I pray this morning that you would commission your spirit to be at work in us to change, to grow, to enlighten, to remind, to refresh, to call people to faith in you and those who believe to call us to greater commitment to you, to follow after you more closely. Lord, I don't know where everybody is here this morning and what all of our individual particular needs are, but I pray that you would take this passage before us and challenge and grow each one here. Lord, tend to your church, minister your word to it. Open up our eyes and let us see Christ. And it's in his name and for his glory that I pray. Amen. As we've been working through the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul's finally made it to Jerusalem, and as he's been traveling there all along, he's been encouraged at every step by God, as God has come to him and reminded him of things here and there, and, and crossed his paths with different people that would be an encouragement to him. And he finally arrives, and as we saw last week, he had a very encouraging meeting with those who were the leaders of the Jerusalem church, with James and the elders. And they spent a long time rejoicing over all the work that God had done in calling people from the nations to faith in Christ. They spent a long time doing that, and then towards the end they turned to discuss a problem that they had locally in the church. James and the elders bring up the fact that it was rumored among the church in Jerusalem, so these would all be Jewish Christians, it was rumored amongst them that as Paul preached and evangelized out in the nations that he would constantly encourage people to throw Moses away to throw away all that Moses taught and all the customs of their fathers to get rid of it, which was not true. We mentioned briefly last week that Paul was not against Moses and against what the law taught. He couldn't be. It's the Scriptures. It comes from God. What Paul was against, what he'd become convinced of thoroughly, is that the Bible, God, is against this idea of salvation by law. That if you work and behave in just the right way, then you will be saved. If you perform this custom and this vow and this ritual in this particular way, that somehow you merit acceptance by God. May it never be. But 
Then Paul said, once we're clear on that, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, once we're clear on that, then all that the law teaches is good and is helpful in a number of different ways, pointing us towards that, pointing us towards God. It can be helpful in reminding us and in strengthening our commitment and shaping our moral character. So great, if you want to circumcise your kids, that's fine, as long as you're clear it doesn't merit anything. If you want to take a vow, like I do sometimes, said Paul, fine, as long as you're clear it doesn't merit anything. So he wasn't telling people to throw Moses away. The leaders knew that, but the church was confused. And so to clarify it, they asked him, hey, will you do something tangible, visible to display this? We have four men in the church here who are under a Jewish vow. Would you participate with them in that vow by paying for their sacrifices, which would also involve you becoming ceremonially clean? Would you do that? And Paul says, sure. He's highly concerned to maintain unity in the church and not create a division. So he says, sure, I'll do that knowing that it would cost him. Cost him some liberty, cost him financially, might cost him physically, because surely he must know that going to the temple regularly would bring him into contact with those who hate him and are a physical threat to him. But he's willing to undergo that danger, to pay that cost for the sake of unity. We talked about that last week. And then we saw that the threat of the danger finally came about. Jews who opposed him found him in the temple, made an assumption that he was there with a Gentile and desecrating the temple. He wasn't, but that was their assumption. And so they seized him and began to beat him to death and started a riot that the whole town got wrapped up in and that brought Roman soldiers rushing in in the nick of time to save his life. The, the Roman barracks was attached to the temple courtyard and several hundred soldiers came down the, stair, the stairway into the temple courtyard and literally saved his life, physically pulled him out of the mass that was beating him to death, chained him, arrested him because of the chaos, and they're carrying him away, back up the steps into the barracks. That's where we stopped last week. I'm going to pick up this week in chapter 21, verse 37, and read through chapter 22, verse 29. Now see the setting this occurs in. The setting is there's a mass of people down in this temple courtyard, maybe a thousand people, maybe a couple thousand people, who are vehemently against Paul, calling for his blood. And a few hundred Roman soldiers have just rescued him and they're moving up the stairwell. Verse 37 of chapter 21. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, the commanding officer, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he'd given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, 
binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him, and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. The passage begins with the soldiers who had been, of course, protecting their escape route, that stairway up the side of the wall. They'd been protecting that, and they were withdrawing up this stairwell, and the center of this group of probably a couple hundred soldiers, where the commanders of the soldiers are and the prisoner that they just arrested and were carrying, when the center of that group reaches the top of the stairwell that would have been at least partially exposed to the court, Paul speaks to the tribune, the commander. And he speaks to him in Greek, which surprises this guy, because as we find out, 
he'd come to an assumption himself. He, he'd jump to a conclusion about who Paul must be, given all this turmoil here. He assumed that Paul was an Egyptian. There had been, recently there had been a particular Egyptian who had been a false prophet, had misled many Jewish people into starting a revolutionary of sorts that had not gone well, and the Romans had killed several hundred Jews at this man's leading. And the Roman assumed that what this must be is this is that guy, and they finally caught him, and now they're exacting a bit of a revenge on him. They're going to beat him to death themselves. So that's who this guy must be, right? But he speaks Greek. So who are you? Aren't you that Egyptian guy? You can kind of see the, the puzzled look on Paul's face. He, he has no idea what this guy's talking about. This happened before he arrived in town. He says, no, that's not me. I'm a Jew, actually, born on the other side of the Mediterranean in what's modern-day Turkey. And I'd like to speak to these folks. Now, as you read this, there's a little bit of dry humor in this, you, the, the puzzled look on Paul's face that you can imagine. But there's a little more than just a little bit of humor. Luke is working in a consistent theme here. It's been introduced already, and for the rest of the book of Acts, it's going to be consistently touched upon. A contrast between, on the one hand, you have blind Jewish murderously unjust, bent against him, hostile people. And on the other hand, you have calm, cool, and collected, open-minded Roman justice. Pagan Roman justice, listening to the facts, and Jewish people who should be otherwise, but are bent towards vehement revenge. It's a contrast developed throughout the whole rest of this book, and it comes up here again. The Roman government just saved Paul's life from his Jewish brethren. And the Roman, we see, had, had just like the Jewish crowd, jumped to a conclusion about him. The Jews had assumed that he was defiling the temple, that he brought a Gentile in. This guy assumes he's that Egyptian. But contrary to the crowds, the Roman is very quick, have an open mind, listen to the facts, change his opinion, and give Paul a hearing. It's a contrast developed consistently throughout the rest of this book. So he says, oh, you're not that guy. Oh, and you want to speak? Sure. Okay, that's fine. So Paul stands on the top of the steps, motions with his hand, and draws the crowd to order, and he begins to speak to them in their language, which draws them even more to silence, and they listen. They're hanging on his every words, and he offers up his defense. There are a number of trials throughout the rest of this book. This is the first one. He's essentially on trial before a hostile Jewish audience. And what he tells is his testimony. It's told three times in this book, actually, and each one has a little bit different emphasis. We all know that we can tell a story from different angles and emphasize different things, and all of them be true. They just have different aspects that, that are being brought out. And in this case... As he's giving his defense before a very hostile Jewish audience, what Paul is going to emphasize is, here's how I came to preach what I preach, to whom I preach it, from a very Jewish angle. Consistently, he's going to emphasize faithful Judaism in his life and all around him in calling him to ministry. Much of what he says emphasizes that he had not in any way rejected or become disenchanted with the faith passed down to him. Quite the contrary, in fact. This is important because from time to time throughout, throughout history, in Paul's day and even up to our day, from time to time, people come up with new religions. 
And the consistent pattern is that it very often begins with the person becoming disenchanted with what he's been taught already. And so he begins to look for something else. He sets that aside, doesn't like that anymore, doesn't want that anymore, finds that insufficient, and moves on to look for something else. This is what Muhammad did. This is what others have done as they go out into the desert or into a cave or into the forest somewhere. Discontent with what they had, looking for something else. And consistently they are alone. Off in the wilderness somewhere. And then they have an epiphany all by themselves. Maybe it's something that they imagined. Maybe they make it up. Maybe they're hallucinating. Maybe Satan actually appears to them masquerading as an angel or as God. And then they come back and here's this new thing that I've received all by myself. Come and be a follower. Paul's aware that that kind of thing happens. And he wants to make very clear that is exactly what did not happen with me. I was not in any way discontented with what I'd received. In fact, I was fully convinced. I'm as, as thoroughly convinced as you all are, as he speaks to the crowd. I was even more convinced than you all are of the truth of Judaism as passed down to me from the fathers and the falsehood of this way, Christianity. Verses 3 to 5 make that clear. Born a Jew, raised in Jerusalem at the feet of the most prominent, most respected teacher of the day, Gamaliel. I grew up under his teaching, zealous for the law of the fathers in every way, a fierce persecutor of this early Christian church, personally responsible for the ferocious persecution we read about in Acts chapter 8. I imprisoned and even killed women not just men, women too. And when they fled the city, I wasn't content with that. I chased them down to wherever they went to get them, to bring them back, to crush this false, blasphemous religion. Basically saying to the crowd, you think you're zealous, trying to kill one blasphemer you find in the temple. It was my life's work. I exceeded even my teachers. I exceeded everybody. Ask the Sanhedrin. They'll tell you. I was thoroughly convinced chasing these folks down and in that attitude something happened that rocked my world that literally knocked me down turned everything upside down i met the resurrected jesus verses 6 to 11 outline how that happened on the road to damascus he appeared to him blinding him in a light so bright that it paled the midday sun those with him not alone those with him who themselves were equally zealous for the law were on a mission to go chase down Christians. Ask them. They know they were there. Those with me knew something happened. They saw the blinding light too. And though they didn't hear and understand all the voice, they heard some sounds. They knew something was going on. Something miraculous and remarkable from heaven was happening to us as a group. But the revelation was specifically for me. What was it about? Verses 12 to 16. Now, in another setting, Paul tells this story, and he condenses it all so as it appears that everything happened on that road there to Damascus. But here, in this setting, before this audience, he tells the extended version, so as to be able to include Ananias. Why does he want to include Ananias? Two reasons. One, 
Ananias is further evidence that God's not doing something solely on Paul all by himself. God, the God of our fathers, is also speaking to another man in another city separate from me at the same time, telling him to come hunt me down and find me, even though he's afraid of me. The God of our fathers is speaking to him. And what's Ananias like? He himself is a devout Jew, according to the law. I'll give you his name. Go ask. Everybody knew him. People probably still know him. Ask him. Ask about his reputation. Devout in the faith of our fathers. And the God of our fathers spoke to him and told him to come to me. And what he says to Paul is itself also very Jewish. He refers to the God of our fathers. And he says that he appointed Paul to see the righteous one. That's the Messiah. He's loading on the faithful Judaism here. And then what he tells, what Ananias tells Paul to do is also itself very Jewish. Rise, be baptized, wash away your sin, calling on his name. Very Jewish, keeping with the washing mentality of cleansing. Now, just a real brief word about that. Some people have looked at that and have tried to make baptism what saves. We could go into a lot of other places in the New Testament to show that is not the case. One thing I want to point out here, the calling on his name is the underlying foundational piece of this. Rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. You being one who is a caller on his name. Rise, be baptized, wash away your sins. Sins aren't washed away by baptism any more than they're washed away by rising. There's something foundational to that. Calling on his name. The rest of scriptures make clear salvation is by grace through faith alone. But he presents it here in a very Jewish way. Washings. Paul, on the road, meets Messiah Jesus in blinding light even though he's thoroughly convinced that that is impossible because Jesus is currently in hell being punished under the wrath of God for his blasphemy. But nonetheless, there he is, calling on his name, be baptized in his name. So he is, but he still thinks of himself as thoroughly, devoutly Jewish. When he comes around to returning to Jerusalem, where does he go? To the temple to the temple to pray, just like he should. And he goes, and in the temple, what happens? Another trance. He meets Jesus again in the house of God. This, there's no way this is Satan appearing to him in the house of God. He meets Jesus. And Jesus appears to him and sends him away against Paul's desires. Notice Paul trying to, in a sense, argue with God here. Lord, I want to stay here and be a witness to my Jewish brethren. They're part of everyone. You told me that I was going to be a witness to, of these things to everyone. Well, these folks are part of everyone. I want to stay here. And surely, he says, surely they will know, they'll look at my past history, see my devout opposition to this faith, and they will realize that you must have intervened in my life to have caused a change here. And they'll listen, won't they? And Jesus says, no, they won't. They won't. I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. And at that, the crowd loses it. That is way too much. To put that into the word of the Lord in the house of God, that you're to go to the Gentiles? Ironically, 
They are furious and blindingly unyielding at his conclusion that they would be furious and blindingly unyielding. It's true. And when the crowd erupts again, this throwing of dust in their cloak, they're, they're, they're crying out blasphemy. Away with him. He does not deserve to be lived. Kill him. And the tribune, who's been standing there the whole time, not understanding a word of this because none of it's Greek to him, he's just standing there thinking, what is going on? This guy just violated my trust and has incited the crowd again. We're going to get to the bottom of this right now. Take him in and flog him. Uh, the flogging was a brutal Roman punch with a very heavy whip. Some people died from this. It was so brutal. And the tribune is just done messing around. We're going to find out what's really going on. I'm going to beat the truth out of this guy, or he's going to die. One of two things is going to happen. So he takes him in. He orders a centurion to tie him up and begin to flog him. He must have left the immediate area. And just as Paul's about to be flogged, he asks a very casual question. You know, is this, is this actually legal? You can kind of see him stretched out there. Is this, is this legal for you to beat a Roman citizen who's not been condemned of anything? And the guy with the whip must have said, what? And the centurion must have said, what? Because they know, everybody knows, no, it's not at all legal. This punishment was so brutal, there were some punishments that the Roman Empire forbid to be exacted upon Roman citizens because they were so brutal. You could beat everybody else, but not Romans. And at word that he's a Roman, they're suddenly afraid. And the centurion runs off to the tribune, what are you doing? You're about to beat a Roman? You can't do that. And the tribune knows full well. So he comes running. Are you a Roman? Yeah. And they had this humorous discussion about how he had to bribe at great expense some officials. And Paul says, I was born a Roman. My dad was a Roman. Which puts him kind of up the ladder a little bit. And in terror, they unfasten him and step away, really frightened at how close they had come to committing an injustice against him. While out in the courtyards... The ceremonially clean Jews in the temple are calling for his death. There's the irony again. This is so common. The, this, this ironic contrast is so common throughout the rest of the book. I'm not going to talk much about that today. We'll come to it at some point. What we are going to focus on this morning is Paul's defense. His explanation of how it is that he came to preach what he preaches to whom he preaches it. I'm going to make two observations along those lines and then tie it together at the end. Here's the first observation. God has raised up Jesus as his promised Messiah. God has raised up Jesus as his promised Messiah. And I'll put a little bit of emphasis on a couple of words to kind of make the, the, the central concepts clear. God has raised up Jesus as his promised Messiah. God has done something. This is the way Paul would want to emphasize it. He's on, his, he's on trial here, making a defense, and he wants to be very clear, I did not make any of this up. God has done it. Where those who are against him want to cry out, Paul has invented a blasphemy about this heretic Jesus. This is what the issue is turning around. Where did this come from? And what are we to make of Jesus? Remember, the, the, the common context that both the, the man on trial and the jury, if you will, the common context that they have is all of them are expecting a Messiah. 
a deliverer. The, the word Messiah, same word as Christ, essentially means anointed one, a deliverer, savior, if you will. And all of them are expecting one to come because for centuries God has been foretelling him throughout the history of Israel and in its scriptures he has told about one day sending a deliverer. He's held out this promise repeatedly and he's painted a picture of him in a couple of different ways. One, by showing the types of problems that the Messiah would solve and then secondly, by making particular prophecies about his origin or his nature. It's a very big picture, and a couple of the the aspects of that picture that break into our passage today are related to righteousness, he's called the righteous one, and and related to what for many of them would have been described as the resurrection of the righteous dead. Those two things break into our passage, aspects of Messiah. He was described, this great deliverer was described as the righteous one. He himself would be righteous, meaning he'd be pure and holy, far set set apart from sin, and he would bring in an era where sin and evil and oppression and injustice and hatred and discord would all be chased away. He would bring in the messianic age of justice and righteousness, peace, blessing on God's people. And another aspect of that age is that it would be the resurrection of all those righteous ones who had died before to enjoy it. He would bring in the age of righteousness and the age of resurrection. So all Jews are looking for that kind of a promised Messiah, and most were completely convinced that Jesus is not him. Can't be, in fact. Because he was crucified on a cross. And the scriptures make very clear that anyone hung on a cross is cursed by God. So there's no way he's righteous, he's cursed. And there's no way he's bringing the age of resurrection because he's dead. Can't be. Obviously cannot be. And Paul was extremely convinced of that himself. And so he's chasing down all those heretics who are arguing for it. Persecuting them, killing them, imprisoning them right up until God broke in and did something. Introduced him to this Jesus alive, which can't be, but was. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it blows his mind. He had been crucified under the wrath and curse of God, and yet here he is alive. Who is in charge of the dead? God is. And God let him out? Which means that he's approved of him in some way? How does this work? Because he's been, if you will, stamped, cursed, and now stamped, approved. How does that work? That can't be. But it is because here he is. I'm talking to him. Paul would later write and explain how that works. How is it that Jesus is both stamped accursed and stamped approved by God? It's due to the wisdom and the power of God on the cross. What God has done, indeed he has done both of those things, cursing him and approving of him. Cursing him, punishing him for sin, for wickedness. Not his own, but for others. And then raising him up approved, saying, it was sufficient. I'm pleased. It's good. The the cursing, the payment, the punishment, 
is sufficient. It works. It's good. He was cursed and approved so that this Jesus can come and stand before people, before every single person in front of you, and can say to you, if you come to me, you will find a payment for sin that is sufficient. A cursing that will leave you blessed. If you come to me, in me only, at the cursing that I endured at the cross, I was hung up and punished for sin, accursed by God, according to the Scriptures. That can be applied to you if you come. And it is a sufficient payment because I stand here forgiven for your sin. I stand here approved. I stand here alive forever. Come. He's accursed and He's approved both. God has done something in Jesus. He has raised Him up from the dead and is now, I pray, raising Him up in your eyes, showing that in Him alone there is a cursing that can leave you approved. If you come to Him. Now, for, for that audience in the day, there, there was, that meant something for that audience in the day. Now, most of us here today, most here today, we already are Christians. Most of us, not all of us. So you already have come to Him and you already have experienced this. What does it mean for you? What it means for you, amazingly, is so simple, but I think profound. Let me put it like this. It's true. It's true. God did something. He crucified His Son, and He raised Him approved. Paul didn't invent this, nor did any man or any woman or any group of people. It has its origin purely in the wisdom, glorious that it is, and in the power, glorious that it is, of God. He has made a way, and He has brought you into it, opened your eyes, and saved you. It's true. In a little while, we're going to celebrate communion. And those of you who are believers will take in your hand a little cup. It's not blood, it's just grape juice. But it's designed so that you would look at it and you would remember blood shed for you on the cross. The cross of cursing. Say, there goes my curse paid for by Him. And He is now raised, approved, and so am I, raised with Him. The point of this is that you would take the cup in your hand and you would in your mind visualize Jesus sitting down next to you and the seat that's empty right next to you. If it's not empty, elbow the person next to you, have them move over a little bit, and right in that seat next to you sits Jesus. Saying, here's the cup of the blood of the new covenant. You're approved, though you are a sinner. I've borne your curse and I give you my approval, my blessing. You stand before God, beloved, bought by my blood. Take and drink. I cover you, beloved. And then you take the cracker. It's, it's just a little cracker, a little square, crunchy cracker. 
but it's designed to make you, make you remember bread. And Jesus talking about how he is the bread of life. And he'll sit there next to you and give you the bread and say, this is my body broken for you. I am sufficient for you. I'm what you need. I'm what sustains you. Eat this again and again and again. Don't eat something else. Eat this. I am the bread broken for you. If you're a Christian, you should listen to this and say, God has raised up Jesus as my Messiah, my Deliverer, which means that there is hope for me, that I am approved, that I stand beneath His wings. There's a, a lot of chaos in the world today. There's a lot of chaos in our country today. Economic chaos, political chaos, violent chaos. And Jesus says to you, I stand with you, your Messiah, your Deliverer, appointed by God to bring you through. Not necessarily to remove all the stuff, to bring you through it. I'll stand at your side and give you strength. And when you die, when you die in me, there is hope. So do not fret like the world frets and do not grieve like the world grieves. He's your Messiah, your Deliverer, sent by God, not made up by Paul or by anybody else. It means something for us as Christians. The Gospel does. But obviously, Paul's main audience is thousands of non-Christians. And what it means for them should be equally obvious. He's trying to put himself into their shoes. I am, I was a zealous persecutor of Christians. And in that very moment, not unlike the moment right here that we're experiencing, God spoke. Jesus appeared to me. i got to believe Paul's on the top of the steps speaking and praying, God, open their eyes right now. Right in the moment of their antagonism, open their eyes. Shine. Make the truth clear. Bid them come to you, Lord. If you're not a Christian, the call to you now, even at this very moment, is come. Come. You find approval in God's eyes, not by anything you have done, purely by the death of Christ on the cross. Trust that cross alone. Speak to Him and say, Lord, take the curse due to me for my sin. Take it on you. Give me your approval. Come to Him like that and He will accept you. But Watch out for something as you hear this. The one mention I'll make of the two attitudes of the Jewish-Roman contrast here, be very careful. Look into yourself. Ask yourself, which group are you more like? Because plenty of people in this text and throughout the ages, plenty of people when they encounter this message of hope and grace in Christ alone, miss it because they have already previously decided that it's false. And they are no longer listening to it. 
is that you. There are plenty of facts. Plenty of facts. Paul throws a few out in his discussion with him there. There's, the guy's name was Ananias. He lived in Damascus. Everybody knew him. Go ask him. I was with a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of people on the way to Damascus. They saw it too. Go ask them. Ask the Sanhedrin what I was like. Walk 10 minutes that way and check the tomb. Is it empty or is there something in it? Nobody did any of that because nobody wanted to. It didn't fit with their previously concluded idea of truth. The answer is, Jesus is false. Now, how do we get there? That's the thinking. Is that yours? Watch out. Watch out. There is great hope offered here on one road. Jesus. And people miss it all the time because it doesn't fit with what they want to be true. Don't go that path. God has raised up His Messiah and His name is Jesus. He was crucified to bear the curse of God for all those who trust Him. Raised to give life to those same people. Come to Him and trust Him. God raised up Jesus. And in particular, He raised Him up on that road at Damascus in front of Paul's eyes for a purpose. And that brings us to the second observation. Here's the second observation. God has raised up Paul and us. God has raised up Paul for the sake of the nations. The God of Israel... The God of the patriarchs, He is pursuing not only Jews, but in fact is pursuing all the nations of the earth. Reaching out to all of them. In fact, not even inviting them to come, but pursuing them into the four corners of the globe, wherever they live, into their neighborhoods, into their homes, He is pursuing them. God has raised up Jesus as Messiah, Paul emphasizes that in the first half of his defense. And then here in the second half, he emphasizes what role he himself was called to play in that. And again, I could state it with a certain emphasis on God. God has raised up Paul for the sake of the nations. Paul didn't volunteer here. God the Son appears to him on the road. God speaks to him both on the road later in the temple. God blinds him. God gives him back his sight. God sends Ananias to deliver the message. Those events all show God active. But then even the language of the text emphasizes it further. Verse 10, Paul will be told what he is appointed to do. Appointed. Verse 14, God has appointed Paul himself for a task. In verse 21, Jesus says that he's going to send Paul away. So God is active here, appointing and sending Paul, intervening in his life, interrupting his life. Totally unexpected, uninvited. God is at work here. Why, though? Verses 14 and 15. Look at those verses closely. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Not just to know his will about like what college should I go to or who should I marry or something like that, but his will. What he's up to. 
His salvation plan, what Jesus is about, what the Gentile mission is about, His will, God's going to download all that to Paul. He's appointed you to know His will, to actually see the Messiah and to hear from Him. Why? So it'll be a cool blessing for Paul. The end. No. So that Paul himself will be saved. The end. No. Now, certainly that was a cool blessing for Paul. And certainly Paul was saved. That's, that's all clear. But that's not the end goal. There's much more than that. Verse 15. For... Because you, Paul, are being appointed to go be a witness about all this stuff to everyone. And just to make clear who everyone is, verse 21 clarifies the gospel is going to the nations, to the Gentiles. God came upon Paul, saved him, revealed to him the mystery of the gospel, not purely so that he would be saved, but so that he could then carry this out to the world. He's at work in an individual for the sake of many. See the connection? It's right there in 14 and 15. God has raised up Paul for the sake of the nations. What becomes obvious is the God of Israel, who has been focusing on, has been at work in little people Israel, has a far greater goal. He's looking at a little bitty nation and a small people for the sake of the nations. And this is the point when you and I come into this, speaking to Christians. Paul has a very unique spot to play here. He's, he's got a once in a, in, a, in a forever role, writing much of the New Testament, foundational apostle. He's got a very unique role. So we're not being appointed to Paul's particular job. But you've got to see, Paul's appointed to that because God has a heart. And God still has that heart. He still is after the nations. And Paul's dead. So he's got to raise up new messengers. Who's that? In this age, it's us. Acts 1.8 says, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, spoken to a small number of people who are all dead, but they died before the gospel reached the ends of the earth. They were his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and a part of the Mediterranean world, and a little bit of India. But God's heart, his mission, his agenda to spread the glory of the Lord in Christ over all of the earth as the waters cover the sea, repeated a couple times in the Old Testament, that goal stands even when they all die, which means he's going to raise up new messengers. Who's that? Us. Follow the train of thought there. He's after something. He has a heart an agenda, and he raises up Paul and raises up his church today to match that. God's heart has not changed. You have been blessed so as to be a blessing. You have received so as to give and help others receive. You have been appointed to See and hear the Messiah, not in person, face to face, in the scriptures. 
so that you can go and tell what you have seen and heard. God is after the Gentiles. That's what sends them all through the roof. Now, most of us are Gentiles, so that doesn't really alarm us. We've been given some, some sight, and we can look through the Old Testament, and we see, of course, it's all over the place. We read the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and see all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. I know what that means. We read Psalm 67, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, that your salvation may be known to the ends of the earth. I know what that's talking about. It's the nations, the ends of the earth. I get that. We read Isaiah 49, 6, where God says to the Messiah, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And we say, how could it be any more clear? And so it's easy for us to stand and say, what? how is this difficult? It's written right there in English or Hebrew. Just the same as them, there are plenty of people that we seem to have blind eyes towards. When I say the nations, I don't just mean Gentiles, say, because then that's over. He's after the nations. That's not nation states. It's not just Gentiles. It's people groups all over the globe. He's after a people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. The Bible is really clear. He is not going to save every single individual person. That's clear. But he is going to save people from every people's, from among the people's. So who is it that we're turning blind eyes towards? Who do you see but don't see? See but try to avoid. See but assume the Gospels, I mean, sure, of course, it's for them, but not really. Or not from me. There are all kinds of walls and barriers and moats and oceans that we need to cross with the gospel because God's heart is for all peoples. White people too. Republicans also. Even Americans I put it like that because I, I have a feeling that for most of us, that's home base. Well, of course, for white American Republicans. Duh. For most of the church, that's not home base. For most of the church across the generations and across the globe today, white American Republicans make up a very small minority. And God has sent the Messiah even to them. Praise God. And if He reached us, He wants to reach everybody. Who's on the other side of your wall? I don't know who it is. For you, it all depends. If you're white, if you're an American, if you're a Republican, or not. There are people from all sides of those equations here in our church. There are others out there who... For the sake of the nations wants to stretch you. But as you're being stretched, don't forget God. 
raised you up for the sake of the nations. God did it. We sometimes get a little confused and think that the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, is like our job assignment. It is, but it isn't. It's what God's doing. God takes Paul and says to him, you will be my witness. I didn't ask you. I'm making you so. Acts 1.8 says the same thing. Not, will you please be my witnesses? You shall be my witnesses. This is God's doing this, and he's drafting an army. Not asking for volunteers. God's doing this, which, which means something for us, but it also should be tremendously, which is kind of the, obli- the obligatory angle, I've got to be about this, I'm under orders, but it also should be tremendously encouraging that God is driving this. He's going to spread His glory across the nations. We know Psalm, the verse in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Most of us don't know the whole verse. What? Maybe that's not true. Some of us perhaps don't know the whole verse. We like to use that verse as as a comforting statement, and it is, cease striving, rest, know that I am God, comma, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The whole statement is, stop striving, I win. I will be exalted. Why can you stop striving? Because I'm doing it, says God. With you, yes, but God's doing it. If you forget that, what happens is some motivation that's rooted to guilt or worry, frantic activity, if it's meant to be, it's up to me, I better get cracking, I gotta do it, I gotta press. You start to manipulate, turn, twist, push. You run out of room to stand back and say, I'm going to relax in God as I initiate. And if the doors close, I'm not going to hammer it down. I'm trusting in God. Or you, or you flat give up because it just isn't working. But how are we guarded against manipulating and pushing and, and striving or giving up? We remember that God is the one doing this. God has raised up Paul and now us for the sake of the nations. And he can only do that because he raised up Jesus as the Messiah for the nations. So put this together. God is at work for the sake of all peoples. And he is working through his people. So join him. God is at work for the sake of all peoples, and He's working through His people. So join Him. We're going to move towards communion now. And the cup and the bread will come near to you to remind you of the Messiah who shed His blood and broke His body for you and for others. As we move towards that, take some time now to pray. Quiet your own heart. Pray. Confess sin. Ask God to grow you and change you. And after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll close in prayer and we'll move into communion. Father, we thank you that you have worked in this world to raise up a Messiah 
to save your people. You've promised us that He will come again to save us fully. To make the world new. To, to bring in the fullness of the age of righteousness. He has begun that age now. He will bring it in, in fullness later and we are thankful for that promise. And Lord, I pray that You would work in us to show us how to respond. Open our eyes to those around us. Grow in us trust of You, I pray. Father, turn our hearts now to the cup and the bread. Grow in us hope in and thankfulness for Jesus and His cross. We pray this in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.